Well, today we're continuing our study of the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, turn with me to, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 21 to 37. Matthew 5, verses 21 to 37. Let me pray for us one more time, and then we'll dive into our text. Father God, we thank you as we've already prayed just for the opportunity to, to be here together. Lord, we know that you primarily speak to us through your word. What we're doing here is, is trying to hear from you, Lord. So Father, send your spirit in these next moments together and, and just do that work that only he can do of conviction and encouragement, giving us faith where we lack. But Lord, in particular with this text, this is a hard text in so many ways. It's not hard because, because it's difficult to understand. But by your grace, you spoke very plainly when you originally spoke these words. This is easy to understand, but, but it's hard to live. And so, Lord, where this passage feels like a burden to us, I pray that we wouldn't run if you're convicting us in some way. We wouldn't run from that conviction. But also, Lord, as we feel a burden with this passage, and, and I, I think there is a burden to this passage, that, that I pray that we would rest in the gospel, believe the gospel, trust the gospel, go back to who we are in you, confident that you can work through us in these areas. Lord, none of us are going to get out of this room alive in the sense of this thing is going to hit. It's going to hit every single person in this room. So, Lord, I ask that your spirit now would come and just, just open our hearts. This is going to be easy to understand with our heads, but with our hearts, Lord. Just open our hearts and do a good work. Help us to really hear your word today. Lord, to that end, I pray that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word, but I would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Well, Tommy smashed a lamp. And it was the thing that got his attention that something was off in his heart. It was this check engine light that he needed to take his soul in for a checkup, if you will. And in one sense, it was really understandable that, that he got angry. Tommy was a, a young husband, a young father. He was working his first professional job. It was a sales job. And even though there was a little bit of a salary with it, it was one of those commission jobs, right? ABC, always be closing, right? Like he, he needed to be closing deals in order to pay the bills. And, and uh, he felt this pressure. They, they, they just had their first baby, and he felt this pressure to bring home the bacon. He'd been working for months to close this big deal. The firm's uh, principal partner had committed verbally to the deal. However, right at the 11th hour, they backed out. And, and the news was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for him. He, he exploded, and the lamp was the victim. However, it, it really wasn't the lamp that got his attention. You see, he read the email, he screamed some cuss words, he smashed the lamp, the, the baby was napping, she woke up screaming, Tommy's wife scooped up the baby just trying to get out of the way, and, and it was the fear in Tommy's wife's eyes that really cut him to the core. Tommy had, had grown up in a, in a Christian family, they regularly attended church, he was 
converted as a middle schooler at youth camp. He was baptized. However, when he got to college, he, he, he just got busy. There was a lot going on, and, and he never really plugged into a church in college. And then he married his college sweetheart. They got married right after school. They moved to a new city. Uh, they landed this, uh, this first job. They quickly had a baby. And, and really, it, it had been since high school, since Tommy was regularly attending church. And, and if he was honest in his honest moments, he, he was really coasting spiritually have you ever been there like and he he justified it okay like he you know he said listen I, I'm a pretty good guy my wife and I we don't struggle in major ways like maybe other people struggle he knew the bible stories he had asked Jesus into his heart as a kid but but the reality was is that that Tommy was a pretty shallow immature Christian at least that's what his old student pastor told him you see in the lamp incident he knew something was off and so he reached out to his old student pastor and just said, hey, I, I need help. And so uh, the, the student pastor on the phone kind of quizzed Tommy on a couple of things, just trying to kind of gauge what was going on. But at, at the, by the end of the call, he offered to meet weekly with Tommy. But before he hung up, here's what this uh, pastor told the young man. Tommy, it's time for you to go deeper in your discipleship. It's time for you to do some heart work. That's what Matthew 5 is all about. And specifically, that's what Matthew 5, verses 21 to 37 is all about. It's about doing the heart work in order to go deeper into your discipleship. Now, if you're new with us today, we're, we're in this series on the Sermon on the Mount. And it began at Easter. And at Easter, we looked at the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are these, this beautiful introduction to the sermon. There's these profound statements. And it's all about being a countercultural citizen of the kingdom that is to come. If you want to be a disciple of Christ... You need to be distinct from the world. You don't need to live according to the world's rules. You're to live according to the kingdom that is to come, which means you're going to be distinct here. And when I hear distinction, I think separation. So I think, okay, what Jesus is calling us to live so different that you separate from the world. That's exactly what Jesus was not saying. Because right after that, he goes into this passage talking about salt and light. Do you remember that passage? You see, we're to be salt and light as disciples. We're to permeate the world as salt and light. We're to be salt where we kind of sweeten what is decaying. And we're to be light where we're to shine truth in those dark places. So we're to be very much in the world, even though we're not to be of the world. So we're to be distinct, but we're to permeate the world. But then after salt and light, Jesus takes what maybe sounds like an, like an odd uh, insert. He starts talking about being the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That's where we were last week. He, he chases this idea that he gives us this principle, and we called it the Jesus principle, that Jesus said that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So Jesus said, listen, I, I'm not diminishing the Old Testament. I'm not disagreeing in any way with the Old Testament. I, I've come to fulfill the Old Testament. And so, so I'm not leaving it unchanged. Now that I've come, there's some things that have changed, but it's not a contradiction to it. It's fulfilling it. It's taking it to its completed end. And so he talked about jots and tittles, these smallest parts of words. And he said, until those things are fulfilled, then it's not fully fulfilled, meaning that I'm going to take everything that is said in the Old Testament and I'm going to fulfill it. And so he was saying that, listen, these smallest component parts of the Word of God matter. So, so we can't separate the details of the Scripture from these principles, how we talked about how red-letter Christians do. They, they disregard big chunks of the Old Testament and say, well, I'm just going to follow what Jesus said. And we said, well, what Jesus said is, I've come to fulfill it. 
So, I, so I'm not disagreeing with it in any way. Now, now that principle, it's a hermeneutical, theological principle that Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament. Jesus is talking about in the context of discipleship. The Sermon on the Mount is all about discipleship. He has two disciples about how to be a disciple. So, so that principle matters. And now he's going to apply that principle of fulfillment into six different areas. Now, we're going to take two weeks on this of looking at these six different topics. We're going to look at the first four of them this week. But, but he's going to focus on the inside before going to the outside. That's the gist of what he's doing here. He's saying, listen, the way I fulfill this the way you're supposed to be a, a countercultural Christian and citizen of the kingdom that is to come is that you're to go deeper into your discipleship in this way. I'm not lowering the bar in any way. Jesus is saying, I'm raising the bar. And the way he's going to raise the bar is he's going to cut to the heart. And so he's going to look at, at today four different areas where, where we're to live out our discipleship. And specifically what he's going to call us to do as he raises the standard is he's going to call us to, to evaluate our heart. He's going to cut to the heart. We're going to have to do some heart work today. So the first section is a call for disciples. Battle your anger. Look with me at verses 21 to 26. You've heard that it was said of, of those of old, you should not murder, and, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Least your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Over and over again in this section, we're going to see this memorable rhetorical pattern where Jesus says, Okay, you have heard it says, reference in the Old Testament, but then I say. Now that little rhetorical tool is linking us back to the previous passage where he talks about that he is the fulfillment. He was the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and now he's explaining what this looks like. So again, he, he's not abolishing the Old Testament. Jesus never teaches anything in contradiction to the Old Testament. Jesus doesn't speak to everything that is spoken in the Old Testament, and he doesn't have to because he has fulfilled the Old Testament. He's never in contradiction to the Old Testament. So he uses this Jesus principle about fulfillment in order to teach his disciples about discipleship. And again, he's going to raise the standard by cutting to the heart. The first issue he deals with is what the Old Testament taught about murder. Now he goes to the, the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder, Exodus 20 verse 13. What he's saying here is that God always has taken murder seriously. Now listen, if you're one that says Jesus is somehow in contradiction to the Old Testament. He disregards the Old Testament. The Old Testament doesn't matter. Then you kind of got to do something here. Are you saying that God's okay now with murder? Well, of course not. Jesus is not saying you're free in the gospel to murder. He's saying, listen, in the Old Testament it said don't murder. I'm validating that. So he's supporting the Old Testament standard. Now listen, if you don't support capital punishment as a Christian, that's okay but, but there is very clear biblical grounds for it, specifically Genesis 9-6. 
Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God has made man in his own image. So when God has created you, he views you as being created in the image of God. So you as an individual have inherent dignity and value as an individual. And God takes that so seriously that he established government in Genesis 9 to say if someone murders someone, then the government, the collective, should uh, can act, enact capital punishment right here. Now again, if you disagree with capital punishment, that's fine, but there is clear biblical grounds for it. However, Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament. He's raised the bar by cutting to the heart. He went inside before going outside. So he doesn't want you to murder, but he's really kind of getting to the heart behind it, right? Like, like he really doesn't want you to, to be angry at anyone. He's going on the inside. And listen, that matters because he cares about the outside. He doesn't want you to murder, but, but he doesn't want you to be angry. And listen, if you're not angry at anyone, then you're not going to murder anyone. So in, in order to be a faithful disciple, you have to do heart work. You, you can't be angry at someone and be a faithful disciple. Uh, Ephesians 4.31 and Colossians 3.8, it tells us to put away anger. James 1 says that we are to be slow to anger. So if you're angry at other people, you're violating Jesus' standard here. You're not being a faithful disciple. God's Word calls you to put it away and be slow to anger. But how do we do that? We're all going to struggle with anger at different points, some of us to greater degrees than others. But how do, we, how do we not be angry? How do we put it away? How do we be slow to anger? Let me give you two things from God's Word. First off, Ephesians 4.31, it teaches us to intentionally recall how God was not angry with you. God was angry at you. He could have uh, given you justice. He was justified in doing that. But if you're a Christian, he's given you mercy and grace in place of justice, and he's not angry at you. He could be angry at you. He maybe should be angry at you, depending on how you think about that. He's justified in being angry at you, but he has chosen not to be angry with you. Now, the more you ponder that, the more you remember that, it softens your heart on being angry to other people. The second thing that the New Testament gives us is that we're to believe that Jesus will set all things right. Romans twelve nineteen says that we're not to avenge ourselves. The reason we're not to avenge ourselves is because God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That's how we put away anger. We remember the gospel and then we really believe the gospel. That's how we put it away. So Jesus not only raises the bar by cutting to the heart, but he also in this passage, he gives us a warning, doesn't he? What if we give ourselves over to our anger? What if we just uh, we don't battle anger? What Jesus is saying here is that if you don't battle anger, you're going to face judgment. In fact, he goes so far to say that if someone gives themselves over to their anger and never battles anger, not only are they not a disciple, but they're on the pathway to hell. This image here of hell, and he says hell of fire, he's referencing, uh, he's using the word Gehenna. And Gehenna was a reference to a part of the city of Jerusalem. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, today it's like it was back then. It's a lot of kind of steep hills. And so at the bottom of one of these hills, in one of these narrow valleys, they had a certain part of town where they burned the trash. And they called that Gehenna. And that became this image of what eternal damnation is going to be like. It's going to smell. It's going to be smoldering with fire. And he's saying, listen, if you give yourself over to your anger, you don't battle anger, that's where you're headed. And then he gives this 
Really dramatic two-part illustration to call his disciples to a higher standard. He, he talks about their offering at the altar. So he's talking about temple sacrifices. He, he's talking about worship here. So he's saying, listen, if, if you claim to be a disciple and you have anger in your heart and then you try to worship, he's saying your worship is tainted in some way. You're, you're not worshiping from a pure heart. In other words, Jesus doesn't give us to license to worship him when we have unsettled grudges. He specifically uses this example of, of grudges between two Christians. Notice here in the text he says brother. He, he's saying, listen, if, if a brother has something against you, he's saying go deal with it. So he's, he's talking about a relationship between two Christians, two spiritual brothers. Listen, I, I think this is important to always keep this in front of us, that, that church is a deeply relational experience, Right? This is all about relationships that we have with other people. You know what happens when you have close relationships with other people? People sin against each other. People hurt each other. If you're in a marriage, you have a close friend, co-workers. This is what happens in church. People sin against each other. Listen, if you're new here, I'm just going to put the cards on the table. Somebody at some point is probably going to hurt you here, Okay. Somebody's always mad at me around here, and they got a point, okay? Like, it's going to happen to you as well. We, we had this phrase today where people claim church hurt. And listen, church hurt is real. I, I got church hurt, okay? I, I can tell you some stories of crazy things that, that have happened in church. But sometimes what is behind church hurt is some real unrealistic expectations of relationships. If, if you're going to be in church somebody's going to hurt your feelings. Somebody's going to, going to uh, sin against you at some point. And listen, people have used church hurt to then deconstruct their faith. When you push in on people who, have, who are deconstructing their faith, they many times talk about church hurt. But, but here's the reality. That many times when you push into those issues, you really find someone who is just simply an angry, unforgiving person. That many times is what is going on. And listen, that's not to... You know, that's not to diminish the church hurt that people go through. But, but he's calling us here. When you get some church hurt, when a brother sins against you, you need to go to him and y'all be reconciled. You need to forgive. The church and the Bible aren't the problem. Their hearts are the problem. Of course, that's not always the case. But Jesus is using this illustration, this scenario of a Christian wronging another Christian. And he's calling disciples to do the work of forgiveness and reconciliation in order to worship purely. One final comment here. Jesus then expands the illustration with this instruction to, to stop worship and go seek reconciliation. You see, he was talking about genuine relational reconciliation. Not legal reconciliation. Like, like, don't get lost in the legal talk there. He's not just saying agree on a contract and then move on where you still hate the guy. He's talking about relational reconciliation. Value the relationship over the, the wrong that was done to you. Jesus is stressing the urgency of reconciliation. Romans twelve eighteen. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Friends, if you want to follow Christ, when someone wrongs us, and when we become angry over it, we're to do the heart work of remembering the gospel, that God isn't angry at us, and believing it, that he's going to make all things right. We're to forgive, we're to be reconciled, we're to battle the anger when it pops up into our heart. Disciples, battle anger. Do you, do you need to do some heart work today?
I warned you, this was going to hit everybody. We're only getting started. That's the first of four. This is going to hit everybody. You're not getting out of this thing untouched today, okay? Let's look at the second one. Disciples battle lust, 27 to 30. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Again, we see this rhetorical pattern. If you've heard it said, Old Testament, but I say now this Jesus principle. Because Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament, he's calling his disciples to battle lust. He's moved now from the sixth commandment to the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Now, now strictly, adultery is a sinful, is sinful sexual relations by a married person with someone other than their spouse. But he's going to kind of expand this out to, to sexual sin in, in general. But, but talking about a marriage, a marriage is a, is a covenant relationship. A covenant is a sacred commitment. It's a, it's a contract of sorts, but it's sacred. There, there's the divine involved. Adultery breaks the marriage covenant. It wrecks trust. And many marriages don't survive it. However, Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament. He's raised the bar by, by cutting to the heart. So like how Jesus dealt with murder and how he, he taught his disciples to, to go into what's behind murder, which is anger. He, he's now calling them, hey, don't commit adultery. But, but he's going to the heart behind adultery, which, of course, is lust. And the focus of the Old Testament was on these outer behaviors, like, like, like you could walk through in Jesus' day saying, I haven't committed adultery, so I'm doing fine in my marriage. But, but Jesus pushes into something deeper. He pushes into the inner motivations. Lust is this inner heart level, mind level sin of toying with these sinful sexual thoughts. It's moving from acknowledging attraction to then rolling these sinful images around in our mind. It's giving into sexual temptation in our heart as well as in our mind. Now listen, many people try to make the case that pornography is a victimless crime. Now listen, you, you can only do that if you buy into kind of an evolutionary, like a secular view that, that humanity, we're just, we're just animals. We've just evolved from an animal. We're these soulless animals. Now if that's what you believe, then you can maybe believe that pornography is a victimless crime. But, but if you believe you have a, a soul, you need to understand that lust poisons the soul. It causes you to view someone as, as less than a human and more as an object. It causes us to be dissatisfied with the gift that God has given us in a spouse. Lust and pornography are not victimless crimes because Jesus explains that lust poisons your soul. And, and then he gives these, these two memorable exaggerations. He gives you these to, to, to drive home a point. Now, I, w- I want to be clear. This is hyperbole, Okay. I want to give you just a, a literary word and category to think of this. Uh, and, and I want to camp out on the fact that this is hyperbole. This is exaggeration. I want to camp out on this for two reasons. Number one, I've known someone who tried to gouge out her eye because she was struggling with lust. And she believed that's what this verse was teaching her to do. So I, I want to be clear that if you ever struggle with lust... I don't believe this is saying gouge out your, your eye or, or, or cut off your hand. 
I'm, I'm actually very serious on that point. Jesus is using hyperbole. He's using exaggeration in order to help you remember a very important point. And the very important point is, is that lust can kill your soul. Take it seriously. Jesus took it seriously, and so should you. But, but the second reason why I camp out on noting this is hyperbole is that, especially if you're a young man, you're likely going to struggle with lust at different, not moments, but seasons of your life. And his hyperbole here, it is meant to help you take it serious in that, in that moment. He's calling you to stop toying with it. However, it's not meant to just heap shame on, on top of you as if your struggles are some sort of an unforgivable sin. I have counseled and discipled so many young men who, when they struggle with lust, they begin to question their salvation. They, they, they go in sometimes in these spirals of deep depression because they think, I'm, I'm never going to be, I'm always going to be overcome by lust. Listen, when you struggle with lust, don't gouge out your eyes. Don't cut off your hand. Don't abandon your faith. Also, don't be paralyzed by shame or, or be buckled under where it takes you to depression. Rather, take it seriously. Jesus takes it very seriously here. Jesus teaches us to, to fight with faith. Listen, if you need to confess something to a close Christian friend, confess it to them. If you need to set boundaries like, like accountability partners or software on your computer or on your phone, do it. If you, need to, uh, if you need to work in a public place, go to the coffee shop. If you're having trouble capturing your thoughts, go on a jog, listen to worship music. And listen, I tell you all those examples because there's no pill you can take to no longer lust, okay? There's no pill out there for that. This is about uh, uh, developing spiritual disciplines to battle. I also want to encourage you with something. A lot of people claim to be sex addicts who are not. Listen, addiction really has the idea that something is it's just uncontrollable. It's deterministic. It's just going to take me in an area and I, and I can't do anything about it. And listen, there are, are real sex addicts out there. But, but many times when people claim that, really what they're getting to is they're basing all this on like brain neurotransmitters and dopamine and all of this. And listen, what is going on there in the sciences is that is there are reactions in your brain that happen when you lust or when you look at pornography. And the way a lot of people say it is that your brain is rewired, and that's certainly true. And it's also true that when you're lusting and looking at pornography, you have these chemical reactions of, of dopamine in you where you have these deep urges that go on. But, but I want you to hear that none of that is deterministic. None of that means that, okay, these biological things are happening, and thus I'm trapped in this forever. Because here's the other side of that truth. When you resist those urges, you know what happens to your brain? You know what happens to those neurotransmitters? They get rewired another way. You know what happens to those dopamine levels? They begin to cease, and the urges aren't as bad. Dopamine is not determinative. Jesus was using these memorable exaggerations. He was using this hyperbole in order to call us to battle lust. For most people, there's going to be seasons where lust just is so overpowering. Listen, don't give in to it. Don't gouge out your eyes. Don't justify it and say it's okay. Don't cut off your hand. Don't chase your animal urges. You're a human. Rather, fight the fight of faith. Confess. Set boundaries. Move. Leave. Set your mind on the things that are above. Disciples battle lust. Do you need to do some heart work today? Let's look at the third section. Disciples, honor your marriage covenant. Verse 31 says, it, is also, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. 
But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, he makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Once again, it was said, but I say, and he's applying now this Jesus principle to the issue of divorce. And I, and, and I think it's important to understand these two verses in the context of this is part of a biblical theology of divorce. This is not the, the, the only thing that is said in the Bible about marriage and divorce. This is not a complete biblical theology of divorce. Just three stops to the Bible on marriage and divorce. Number one, beginning in Genesis 1, God says that he has created humanity male and female. Our gender are connected to our identity according to God's sovereign plan. He's also created marriage in that moment. He creates it for procreation and loving companionship. Malachi 2.16 says that, that God hates divorce. There's a little bit of debate on how that's interpreted, but at the end of the day, God hates divorce. And he goes so far in Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22 to where if a, if a man and a woman are caught in adultery, they're to be put to death. So God's created marriage. He hates divorce. He, he, and thus we should consider divorce very carefully. He has this, this high standard of marriage. You see, uh, healthy, happy marriages, they should be sought after and they should be protected. However, I believe that part of what Jesus is saying here is, is that a divorce can be granted on the grounds of adultery. I'm trying to choose my words carefully here. He's saying it can be granted. He's not saying that it must be granted. He's not mandating or commanding that a couple get divorced uh, if, if one of them has been faithful, unfaithful. But he's saying this is his primary permissible reason for getting a divorce. I've been in vocational ministry for over 20 years now. And I think there's other permissible grounds for divorce. And I, just, I want to touch on them for a second. First off, uh, I think a, a, a biblical uh, ground for divorce, a permissible ground is abuse. Abuse can happen in marriage. Physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse. Those things can be grounds for divorce. Abuse is difficult sometimes because sometimes it's very evident and sometimes it's not. But at the end of the day, abuse can be a ground for this. Uh, even emotional abuse uh, can be a, a legitimate ground for that. Emotional abuse is tough because sometimes what somebody is saying, well, he emotionally abused me. What did he do? And they lay it out and I said, I'm, I'm not tracking. That doesn't sound like emotional abuse. But that's not to say emotional abuse isn't real. It is real. But some of these uh, uh, instances are, are grounds for this. And let me get more specific here. If this abuse or maybe something that's going on in the marriage goes to the degree where the life of the spouse, especially the life of the children, are in danger, I think that's a ground for divorce. And I've had instances of that happening. Also, there's this category of abandonment where, listen, one of the partners wants to stay together. Maybe they, they're not happy about it, but they're committed to stay together. And the other one abandons the marriage. That, that's... I think uh, a biblical ground for divorce. First Corinthians 7 talks about uh, giving the permission of a believer whose unbelieving spouse left them. Paul says that they can be remarried and they're not committing adultery. So some of these issues uh, pop up that aren't specifically mentioned in Matthew 5. So this is part of a, a broader biblical theology of divorce, but Jesus is giving the primary permissible reason for divorce. But then he starts talking about a a certificate of divorce. What's a certificate of divorce? That's a reference to Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, where it mentions a certificate of divorce. Now, most scholars, there's a little bit of debate on this, but most scholars understand the certificate of divorce was about protecting someone who was vulnerable. So in uh, most societies all throughout the history of the world, women were more vulnerable in this society than men. 
And so there were these instances where men would just divorce their wife, and then this wife was left with nothing. Maybe her children had no claim for the inheritance. She had no way to provide for themselves. So God gives this, this check of making sure there's a certificate of divorce in order to protect her if something happens. But probably what's going on in Jesus' day is that that certificate of divorce rule is being abused in some way. So probably what this means is, is these guys are saying, yeah, yeah, I gave her a certificate of divorce, so everything is kosher. Where Jesus is saying, wait a second, you're not really honoring your marriage covenant. Like, yeah, congratulations, you gave her a certificate of divorce, but, but you're doing it for some sort of superficial reason. She hasn't committed adultery. There's no abuse happening here. So you're just kicking her to the curb with this certificate of divorce in a way that you're not ultimately honoring your marriage covenant. So that's what he's getting at here. Jesus is teaching his disciples to honor their marriage covenant. And followers of Jesus, we're to out of lust, we're not to commit adultery. But further, we're not to diminish marriage in some way to where we abandon this sacred uh, commitment and divorce our spouse for some sort of superficial reason. Marriage can be very difficult. Don't say amen to that. Don't elbow anybody next to you. But marriage can be difficult, right? Like, listen, it's not natural or easy to sacrificially love and to submit, and to respect. Listen, personalities and interests change over time. Feelings and emotions wane. I've talked to older couples, and I've heard ladies say, yeah, I've kind of, I've fallen in and out of love multiple times with my husband. Sometimes our emotions wane, and then they get refueled again. It's hard for two people to get along on top of raising kids and managing a household, navigating poor health. This is why compatibility theories on marriage They haven't proven successful. They don't ultimately produce healthy, happy, lasting marriages. If you're basing it all on some personality or activity that you're compatible with, friend, that's the wrong wrong thing to base your marriage on. Really, marriages that are happy and make it uh, to the end, they're the ones that commit to a marriage covenant. Do you see that? Disciples, if you commit to hang in there, Even when you don't feel like it, and even when it's hard, you're going to make it. Disciples, if you commit to rejecting a contractual view of marriage, a view of marriage where you're just always working for compromise, and you replace it with a a covenant view of marriage, where you're always working to sacrificial love and always working to glorify God, you will find happiness in your marriage. Are you honoring your marriage covenant? I mean at at a deep heart level. Disciples, honor your marriage covenant. You need to do some heart work today. Let's look at this final section. Disciples, honor your word. Verse 33 says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair uh, white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. Jesus is now referencing the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not uh, hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Exodus 20, verse 7. However, he's also maybe more likely 
referencing some sort of practice that is going on in the day where, where people are making these, these grand and elaborate vows and, and oaths. So, so probably what's going on here is they're, they're making these bold claims, these, the, these pious vows and oaths. And, and when, if you listen to it, it sounds really impressive. It sounds like, man, that guy's really making a commitment. He really is this honest guy. It's really going to come through. But then when you kind of really listen to it, he's kind of set it up to where he can kind of wiggle out of it in some way. He doesn't have to, full, he doesn't have to really fulfill the full commitment. It's kind of like that political apology, right? Like, I'm so sorry that hurt your, uh, that hurt your feelings. Thank you. Wait, wait a second. Wait, what? That, that's not a real apology. Like, like, you think what you did is fine. That's what's going on here. It, it sounds good in the moment, but if you back up, it, it's really this avenue for them to wiggle out of their commitment. Jesus cuts to the noise and taught, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. Disciples, honor your word. Again, do you need to do some hard work today? I don't know about you, but I kind of like the gentle and lowly Jesus. I like the teddy bear Jesus. And I'll put my cards on the table. I dove into this study thinking I'm excited to get to focus on Jesus. I'm going to be inspired. This is, the Beatitudes are beautiful. This thing has turned burdensome on us, hasn't it? It's clear. Like It's not hard to understand, but, but there's a weight to this, right? Like, like none of you are getting out of here without being touched by this, right? And if you're like me, it's touching you on more than one places. You see, it's a burden because it's easier to just focus on the outside without going on the inside. Like it's easy to say, yep, I go to church, I tithe, I serve somewhere, I'm good. I've checked, I've checked my boxes, I'm good. And then avoid things that are going on in your heart. Going inside is harder. That's why this thing is burdensome. Um, when a passage like this seems burdensome, maybe when it seems impossible, I, I want to remind you of a text. I, I want to remind you of your baptism. If you have your Bibles, go, go over to Romans chapter 6, and I want to look at Romans 6, 1 to 4. I, I've had baptism, obviously, on my, on my mind and my heart this week. And, and listen, we perform baptism, this religious rite, in a, in a very intentional way, Okay. We perform it on people, not on babies who haven't been converted yet, but on people that, that demonstrate that they've been converted. It's clear. But, but also, we, we do it by immersion. Our mode of baptism is by immersion. They go all the way under, and they come all the way up. And, and that is a picture, it's a symbol of spiritually what has happened to them on the inside. Look at Romans 6, 1-4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means... How can we who died to sin live in it any longer? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Friend, if you're a Christian, you are united with Christ. You are in Christ. More specifically, you are in Christ with Him, united with Him in His death. In His death, He has paid for all of your sin. No matter which four of these categories is really hitting you today, friend, Jesus has atoned for it. He has paid for it. That, that young man who smashed that lamp, God has paid for that sin of anger. You have died with Him. 
But the news only gets better. You have been raised with him to walk in newness of life. You're not to live life how you used to. You have a new life that you're supposed to live. And the really good news is that it's in him. In other words, he's not calling you to pull yourself up by your moral bootstraps. He's saying that I am with you. And more importantly, you are with me. You are in Christ Jesus, Romans 6.3. Disciples can do this type of heart work because of the good news that you are in, united with Christ. And thus you can walk in newness of life through your union with Jesus. Isn't that good news on a burdensome passage like this? Friend, I'm confident that everyone in this room has failed in one of these categories. Maybe one of them is a deep struggle with you. Friend, go back to your baptism. You are united with Christ. By God's grace, that lamp and that fear in his wife's eyes, they were the conviction that Tommy needed. It was this check engine light that he took seriously. His former student pastor was willing to grab some coffee. And as as they met, this pastor uh, diagnose what had happened, like, like, a, like a spiritual heart surgeon. He, he got into, okay, what's going on in your heart, Tommy? And as he dug, dug in there, it, it became apparent that, that Tommy's heart was, un, was unhealthy, and he was believing some subtle wrong things, and, and thus anger was coming out. There were a couple of subtle wrong things that he was believing. First, he, there was entitlement in there. Entitlement. You see, Tommy had always worked hard in school. He'd always made good grades. He got into the good school. He, he, he thought that he was owed financial success. And so when he was cheated by a client, he felt that that got in his way and it made him angry. You see, Tommy's father was financially successful. His father had never voiced that, okay, you've got to be financially successful in order to be a successful man. But, but that was this subtle thing that Tommy believed in. And, and that... Uh, that lost deal that day, it, it spurred a bit of an identity crisis for Tommy. What if I'm not financially successful like my dad? What, what does that mean? I, I, am I not a successful man and a successful person? It, it really pushed into entitlement, and it pushed into an identity crisis. Tommy and his pastor, they began to meet regularly, and his pastor brought him back to some key texts. He brought him first to Colossians 2, 6, and 7. He talked about how, uh, uh, verse 6, that we are to walk in him. But walking in Him included abounding in thanksgiving, verse 7. So, so the pastor challenged Tommy. He pushed him on his entitlement that had rooted in there. And, and he uh, said, you need to replace your entitlement with gratitude. Tommy began to grow in gratitude. And that enabled him to be less angry at home and more gracious to his clients. But, but the second thing he did, uh, this pastor brought him to, to, to John 3, 1. And about how uh, the, the father has given us his love to the degree that he has uh, taken us from orphans and made us children of God. We're, we're secure in him. In, in other words, in Tommy's case, even if he never found financial success, even if uh, he thought that, uh, even if that never measured up to somebody else's expectations, it measured up to God's. He was beloved in the eyes of his heavenly father. Tommy's identity was in Christ as an adopted, beloved son. You see, the, the Jesus principle means that disciples need to, to, go, uh, they need to, uh, to go inside before they can go outside. They need to get to the heart. Jesus always cuts to the heart. This, this principle means that we need to apply that to, to all these different areas. And listen, doing heart work is harder. 
It's easier to just focus on the outside, focus on uh, the outer appearances and what everyone can see. But let me warn you, that's a house of cards. If you're just focused on what everybody sees around you and and it's empty and void on the inside, that thing's going to crumble at some point. You need to do some heart work today. Do you need to battle anger or lust? Do you need to honor your marriage covenant in some renewed way today? Do you need to honor your word? Disciples, you want to be a disciple. Jesus is calling you to do heart work. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I I thank you for this passage and even in ways where it is brutally convicting. Father, I pray that we would truly push into our discipleship. That we wouldn't be these shallow Christians just focus on the outside, never go deeper, never, never go beyond the surface. But Lord, especially if, if you're convicting us in some way today, that smashing a lamp moment where all of a sudden a check engine light goes off, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't run from that. I pray that we would push into that. I pray that we would trust you in that, believing that your ways are better. Lord, if some of us feel totally burdened and just just kicked in the face today by this passage. I pray, Lord, that, that, that we would rest in you, knowing that you're with us, you're for us, we're united with you. Lord, help us to know the heart work that we need to do and give us the strength to do it. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen.